Love that. I left my heart when I left home. I think there's something in that that resonates, that connects with every single one of us. We all have a concept of home. We have an understanding of what home ought to be, but we also have an understanding of what it has been in our own lives. You know, as we were preparing for this new series we're kicking off today, Home, I couldn't help but think about The Wizard of Oz. How many of you remember The Wizard of Oz? You, you remember Dorothy and Toto and the Cowardly Lion, Tin Man and Scarecrow? Well, there, there's a moment in the film, it's actually the last moment in the film, after Dorothy has completed her journey to Oz and her encounter with the Wicked Witch of the West and Remember the flying monkeys from the bowels of hell? That still scares me. I, anybody here still scared of the flying monkeys? Don't leave your pastor hanging out here on a limb. It's terrifying. Can't believe, I remember my grandmother going, oh, you'll love the Wizard of Oz. I was about seven, still scarred for life. But at the end of Dorothy's journey, she finds herself back in Kansas, back on the family farm with Auntie M and, and Uncle Henry. And it's there in that closing scene that Dorothy verbalizes one of the driving themes of the film, as well as one of the most famous lines in movie history. This was a real, truly live place. And I remember that some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. But just the same, all I kept saying to everybody was, I want to go home. And they sent me home. <laughs> Doesn't anybody believe me? Of course we believe you, though. Oh, but anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. I think we have to clap at that. That, that dramatic, bum, 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 bum. there's something in that. Even, even with that sepia tone, black and white, and, and what we might kind of consider some overwrought acting from 1939, isn't it true that there's something in Dorothy's statement that resonates, I mean, at a soul deep level? There, there is, in fact, no place like home. Home. Now, there's many different conceptions and perceptions, perspectives and connotations about home as there are people who hold them. Your experience of home, different from my experience of home, different from your experience of home. And, and we all carry with us a lot of our own experiences of home into our expressions of home. What, what we think about when we think about home. And if you grew up in a home that was relatively stable and only had kind of intermittent dysfunction, then you probably resonate a lot with Dorothy and her obviously positive perspective on home. On the other hand, if maybe home for you was a hostile environment, maybe it was not a safe place where you walked in and you said, oh, I'm home, I'm safe, and I like it here, then you clearly are probably not gonna really connect a whole lot with Dorothy and Toto and Auntie M. But all of us, no matter our experiences, no matter where we come from, all of us probably find ourselves 
kind of in a, in a certain area along that continuum about home, about our concepts, our ideas of what home really is. And today as we kick off this series, we're going to take a biblical look at exactly what home is. What is it that we're talking about? Because it's not just a place. It's not an address that has you know, latitude and longitude attached to it. Home is actually a very, very spiritual, spiritual reality. I think for us to really get at this, we have to understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about home. So here's just a working definition of home to make sure that we're on the same page. Home is where you belong and become your true self. Home is just where you belong and where you become your true self. Now, I think it's very important that you understand when I say your true self, I'm not talking about just what you say about who you are or how I identify myself. Our truest self, our true actual self is who God says we are. That is your true self. That is my true self. It's what God says about us. It's what, it's what he had in mind when he knit you together, knit me together in, in our mother's wombs. He had an idea of who we were to be, of, of the soul that he was calling into existence. And so that's a critical, critical piece of what happens at home. Home is where you belong, but it's also where you become your true self. Tim Keller was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And Keller writes this about home. He says, home then is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feelings that surround it reveal some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits and suits us, where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. Yet, it seems that no real place or actual family ever satisfies these yearnings, though many situations arouse them. I think home is where a lot of us can get in trouble around Christmas time. We have these trumped up nostalgic memories of, of you know, butterball turkeys roasting in the oven and evergreens, and we think, man, that's home. And then when we get there and we go back home around the holidays and there's still a little bit of dysfunction maybe bubbling underneath the surface or maybe boiling over, we become disappointed. Because the fact is, no earthly family can ever completely satisfy this soul-deep desire for home. It is, in fact, elusive, as Tim Keller says. It's elusive, but it is not unattainable. Let me, let me put this, I know that's double negative. Don't send me an email or tell my mom who is an English teacher. But let's put it in the positive. Not only is it not unattainable, it is in fact attainable. It is achievable. It is experienceable. You, you can in fact experience home. As a matter of fact, the entire story of God from Genesis to Revelation in a very real way is the story of God bringing people home again. If you started in the very beginning in Genesis when Adam and Eve 
were exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin and traced the arc of the story all the way through to the end of Revelation and the wedding feast of the Lamb. The whole thing is about people like you, people like me, coming home. And that's what we're about over the next few weeks. To dig into this, to, to really get into it, we're going to look at home through the lens of one of Jesus' most popular parables. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's found in Luke chapter 15. It's not recorded in any of the other gospels. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. As you're looking up Luke 15, hopefully in your Bible or maybe on your phone, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit, give you a little context. The prodigal son is actually the third story or parable that Jesus told in a triad of stories to explain not only his mission and why he had abandoned heaven and come to earth, but also the motive behind the mission. He's explaining God's heart for people. And it's, it's great, I love Luke chapter 15 because Dr. Luke, Luke was a physician and he begins by explaining and, and setting the stage for these parables. He says at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15 that many tax collectors and notorious sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. Isn't that great? Tax collectors and notorious sinners. This is, this is the apostle Luke, or, uh, this is the Dr. Luke. Kind of, this, was, this was a basket of deplorables who followed Jesus all around Israel, listening to him, talking to him, listening, and they loved it. But as you might imagine, because these notorious sinners and tax collectors were following him around, the religious, self-appointed watchdogs of the day, the Pharisees, were absolutely up in arms. They were freaking out about... Now, listen... When Luke says they were tax collectors and notorious sinners, this is not the Bible adopting some kind of judgmental tone. He's just, he's just describing who was there. It was, they were notorious. They were sinners of note. It was known throughout the community. These were not the folks who were at temple every time the doors were open. So it was just kind of understood who these people were, what they were about. And yet here was Jesus hanging out with them. The Pharisees, I love the Pharisees said, and he even eats with them. <gasps> no. Yes, he did. That was who Jesus was. That was what he did. It, it was the, the irreligious folks who were drawn to him, who were attracted to him. It was, it was the religious folks who tried to act like they had it all figured out and had it going on. They were the ones that Jesus got most under their skin. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus tells these three parables. The first one, just very quickly, he talks about a shepherd who has 100 sheep and loses one of them. This shepherd leaves the 99 to go and search for and find the one who is lost. He finds the one that is lost and brings him back to the flock and invites his friends and neighbors to come have a party and celebrate the fact that he found this one lost sheep. Parable number two in Luke 15 is about a woman who had 10 coins she had 10 coins and she lost one. And she turned her house upside down searching for that one lost coin. And when she finally found it, she invited all of her neighbors to come and celebrate the fact that she had found it. But when he starts to tell the story of the prodigal son, there is a very, very definite shift 
Because it's in the prodigal son that Jesus offers a lot more detail. It's in the story of the prodigal son and the, the son who left home, the son who stayed home, and the father who made home. It's in this story that Jesus goes at his motive, his mission, and what he is all about. If you've got your Bibles, look in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. He said, a man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, even in, in 2022, you can kind of pick up some of the disrespect going on here. But in our culture, it's really, really difficult to discern the degree of disgrace that Jesus' original audience would have picked up in this story. To have a son come to his father and say, I want the estate now. I, I don't want any relationship with you. I, I don't want anything that comes along with being your son or staying here. I want the money now. The son is saying here, show me the money. And I think it's fascinating that the father does. But we'll, we'll talk about the father here in a couple of weeks. And I'm just going to tell you, it gets really good. But right now, we're going to look through the eyes of the younger son. This younger son comes to his father. And in this culture, what he is saying to his father is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Now, you have to understand, this was not a culture where parents, you know, counted to little Timmy to come along. You know, where, Timmy, we're leaving now. One. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. Two. Timmy, don't make me come in. I'll, I'm about to say three. And you know when daddy says three, he really means it. Timmy, 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 Timmy. I'm not kidding. That, that didn't happen in this culture. Parents were parents. Children were children, and everybody knew it. If you disrespected, if you disgraced your family, your parents could disown you. Interestingly, unless you were adopted. If you were adopted, you could never be disowned. Interesting. But biological kids, <laughs> Ben, you walk the line. Because in this culture, the, the children were assimilated into the family life, into the family business. And particularly, sons would have been in the family business with the father. And the way that the estates were divided, the eldest of the sons would receive a double portion of the inheritance to all the other heirs. And so the, the younger brother in this story, he knew he was going to get the short end of the stick from his older brother, but he wanted to take it now. I really think, as we'll see coming up, when, when you get to know this father in Jesus' story, there, there's something that jumps out of the son's request that I think if the father could have communicated anything to his younger son, the son who's demanding his share of the estate now, I think this father would have said to his younger son, younger son please, please, Stay home. Please stay home. Don't, don't, don't take off 
for the distant land. Don't, don't abandon everything that is here for you at home. Please stay home. I think spiritually speaking, we see the same kind of heart set and mindset in God. When, when he sees us, you or me, decide to leave, he, he was like, man, please don't. Please stay in the house. Stay home. Stay connected to the family. Stay connected to me. Because this is, this is home. This is where you belong. This is where you become everything I created you to be. Please stay home. You know, sometimes when we, when we see a prodigal son type person, sometimes we'll say, well, they're just going to have to figure it out on their own. Well, she's just going to have to learn that for herself. Sometimes we even say that about ourselves, don't we? Well, I, I have to see for myself. No, you don't. You, you actually don't. You don't have to go experience Distance, separation, isolation from the family of faith to know that it's not God's best for you. If the stove is on, I don't have to put my hand on it to find out how hot it is. Whoa, that's real. You don't have to do that. Wisdom says, I'm going to learn from other people's mistakes, I'm going to learn from other people's examples. Stay home. Now, unless, unless maybe for you, home is not a safe place. I'm talking about physically speaking. If, if you're in jeopardy or threatened physically, then you leave home. But that's not this younger son's situation. It, it's amazing how much misery he would have missed. How many, how many, self-inflicted bullets he would have dodged if he had just stayed home. But Jesus carries the narrative a little bit farther. Look at verse 13. He says, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Again, even this younger brother, the younger son, the prodigal, even in the narrative as Jesus is telling this story, there's a lesson in there. there. There's an example for us to follow, to learn from, and that is to distrust the distant land. Distrust the distant land. How many times in your life, I, I know I've done this, have we kind of looked beyond the fences of our own home place? Because remember, home doesn't mean Mom and a dad, 2.4 kids, and a white picket fence. But we, we look beyond where we belong, where we become our true selves, and we start thinking about the distant land, and we think, boy, man, the grass really is greener over there. We, that happens all the time, doesn't it? The grass is green. Listen, the grass is greener 
where you water it. That's where the grass gets green. That's where it gets good. All of this stuff about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over. I'm calling a do-over on my marriage, on my family, on my career. The grass is greener where you water it. Years ago, Julie and I bought a new home, and we finally were moving in, but we decided to save some money, and instead of sodding the yard, I said, you know what, I'm going to seed the yard. I'm going to seed it, and I'm going to water it. I remember talking to Julie's dad. He lives in South Mississippi, and he said, keep it soggy, son. Keep it soggy. Always wet. Now, he lives in South Mississippi where it rains. We live in Austin where it does not. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep it soggy. I'm going to water the dog out of this yard. And so I did. Two, three weeks. I'm watering out there. I'm sprinkling. I'm moving hoses. I'm getting everything down. We're saving money. No irrigation system. No sprinkler system. I am the irrigation system. Well, you know what happens. Life gets in the way. Things get busy. And the, the spring turns into the summer. It starts to get hot. City of Austin imposes water restrictions. Vacation happens. We came home from vacation that year, and rather than a blanket of St. Augustine bliss, there were just these little tufts of brown, crispy, dry grass shooting up. I remember pulling up and going, my But it was predictable. I didn't water the lawn. If you don't water it, it ain't gonna work. Spiritually speaking, the grass of your life, the relationships of your life is green where you water it. Distrust the distant land. The distant land can be anything. It can be a good thing. Sometimes work can be a distant land. Work is a good thing. It's a God thing. God works. He's called us to work. We're created to produce. But when work begins to chronically take priority over our family, over our relationships, over our health, then it's not a good thing. Then it has gotten out of place in our lives. And we're watering the wrong things the most. You have a very finite amount of water, time, energy, attention, effort. Make sure that you're watering where it goes. Sometimes, sometimes the distant land can be things that are not necessarily good or bad, but pushed to an extreme, they become negative. Jesus turned water into wine. People, man, I, I grew up Baptist, so I, I've heard every argument about why you shouldn't drink alcohol or you know, why you should... Jesus turned water into wine. Well, it wasn't really wine. It was a very weak alcoholic content. It was wine. Jesus drank wine. That's okay. But if you push it too far, it becomes a problem. Again, water your own lawn. Distrust the distant land. You don't have to go to the distant land to find out that it doesn't work. You know if you chase anything far enough other than Christ, it will disappoint you. Distrust the distant land. But again, 
Jesus has not done. The, the level of detail that he goes into with the prodigal as compared to the other parables of this chapter is, is really, really remarkable. I love verse 17 and 18 and 19. He says, now, the Bible says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son, but please take me on as a hired servant. This is a crucial moment for the prodigal, a crucial moment. I love that expression, when he finally came to his senses. Some translations will say, when he finally came to himself. He, he, he came back to his true self. He came back to his senses and he went, wait a minute. I'm sitting here in hog slop. I, I, would, I would like to eat what the hogs are eating. He goes, back home, dad's hired workers eat better than I'm eating right here. And so he devised a plan. He said, I will go home. I will go home and say to my father, I will throw myself on the mercy of the court, the court being dad, and say, dad, I sinned against God. I sinned against you. And I know I forfeited the right to be your son, but would you hire me on as a paid worker, just, just hired help. The prodigal shows us a critical, critical example here. Because it's one thing, it is one thing when we choose to not stay home. And then, even worse, we, we go to the distant land, we decide to trust the distant land instead of distrust it. But here, the prodigal gives us the example, and, and, and he does something profound. He turns for home. He turns for home. I don't know where you are spiritually in this moment, at this place, on this day, but I do know that because of Jesus Christ, it is never too late to turn for home. To turn for home. It's the, it's the picture here of, of that great Bible word, repent. You ever heard that repentance, repent? Jesus said all the time, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus said it differently than a lot of people say it. Sometimes you may hear people say, repent, turn or burn. That's, that's not the idea here. But repent is the idea. Repent means literally to change your mind. If your mind has you going in this direction away from God, like, like the prodigal, you're moving in this direction, you change your mind, and because you've changed your mind, you change your direction. It's like a, it's like a military about face. He turned for home. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. 
I'm not, I'm not going to go into the Father here today, just, but just believe me when I tell you, it gets really, really good. But this, this is it. When he turned for home, he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He had this speech already memorized. You could just see him rehearsing it, walking down the road. And his father welcomed him home with open arms. For a man of this status in this culture to run in this day and age would have been an act of extreme humiliation. Men of stature did not run. They walked. They had long flowing robes that just kind of wafted in the breeze. But when you turn for home, God comes running. God comes running with open arms. And, and it's, it's time to be home again. It's time to come back to that place where you belong and become your true self. And the Father welcomes you back in. Maybe you are a Christ follower and you've repented from a particular sin or a season of sin, that's turning for home. Maybe you're not yet a Christ follower, but you make that turn for the home that you've always desired. Again, not, not a physical address, but a spiritual reality in a relationship where you belong and you become exactly who God created you to be. Turn for home. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And as you bow your heads, I want to share with you the words of Christ from John chapter 14. Jesus said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them. And we will come and make our home with each of them. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. And if you love me, then the Father loves you. And, and together we will make a home with you. A home. A home where you belong. Because you've been forgiven of every sin. Everything that you feel guilty about, everything thing that you are ashamed of, the cross covers it all. Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority and the desire to give you that forgiveness. And he just invites you, come home. Come home. If you're here today or maybe watching online and you've never made that decision, that initial step of faith to trust Christ more than you trust yourself, 
to follow him, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. And just silently from your heart to God say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Because of my sin, I need your forgiveness. And so I confess my sin to you. I I ask that you would remove it from me and replace it with your presence in my life. Jesus, I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again for me. And in this moment, I receive that gift. And in exchange for your life, Jesus, I give you mine, and I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment, eyes closed. If that was your prayer, then as a church, we want to help with what's next. We want to come alongside. And so if you will, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. Number one, let us know that you made that decision. If you're here in the room, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out and hand it to someone at the hub on your way out or take a shot of the QR code and just let us know, I committed my life to Christ recently. All that does is start a conversation, a conversation about what's next, about how we can help. That's first. Second of all, as our heads are bowed, if that was your prayer and you turned for home today, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. And just know that that's just a a physical statement of the spiritual commitment you just made. And as a church, as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that. Our family tradition around here is that you put your hands down. We're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome.